Amen. Wonderful singing, church. What a joy to be with you on another Sunday and to have a, a few new souls with us. That's not just the visitors. We're thankful that you're here. Looking forward to getting to, to meet you, shake your hand, give you a hug. Um, please come and see me after the service if you have time. But there's baby Winnie right there. Did you guys see? Little Winslow and uh, the Neil Wanners. Um, little baby Lucy was born as well. So we're just we're so excited that the Lord continues to add uh, to our church, and um, what a blessing it is for new moms and new dads, and then all of us get to be those aunts and uncles and grandparents of all these children. Well, I am uh, excited to get back into Luke with you. We are just slowly and methodically working our way through Luke's gospel. But let me start you with a little story that goes all the way back to 1937. The American Track Society sponsored a contest back then, and the prize was $1,000, which back then was quite a bit of money. But it was a contest for the best book written, and the topic was Essential Evangelical Doctrines of the Christian Faith. And so there were a number of writers who signed up and began to write and submit their entries. There was a committee representing six different denominations that would judge the entries. And then after reading through plenty of them, the judges unanimously chose one particular book. It was a book written by a pastor in Illinois. You might know this name, Dr. Harry Ironside. He pastored a very famous Church, Moody Memorial Church in downtown Chicago. The book he wrote was entitled, Except Ye Repent. That was the title of the book. Those words coming from the King James Version. I'm sure Terrence appreciates that. Luke 13, 3, where Jesus said, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. <clears throat> Well, listen to how Dr. Ironside introduced his book. He said this, the very first line in his introduction, fully convinced in my own mind that the doctrine of repentance is a missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. So I have penned this volume out of a full heart. Here we are living about a hundred years later, and the doctrine of repentance is not only a missing note, but almost a completely absent note in many churches. We now have lots of books written about church growth, and in some of those books, you'll actually see warnings against preaching on repentance, preaching about sin, because after all, how are you going to attract people to your church if you're singing songs like we're singing and preaching on the topic of sin and repentance? But we're reminded of our forefather, Charles Spurgeon, who said, you're not living to God as you ought unless you are repenting daily. And I'm always reminded of Dr. MacArthur, who at the Master's Seminary and down there at Grace he would constantly tell young aspiring pastors that our message is a message of repentance. 
Yes, it's a hard message. Yes, it's a hard message, harsh message. It confronts sin. It unmasks hypocrisy. It denies superficiality. MacArthur says, but you cannot preach the true gospel apart from repentance. And so today, this morning, we come to the topic of repentance, not because we're doing a topical study, because it's in the text. For those of you that are just joining us, we've been working our way through Luke. We've covered the first two chapters. We're flipping over now today to chapter 3. And so just to catch those of you who have not been with us up to speed, up to this point in Luke's narrative, we've been introduced to many fascinating people. And all of them have been pointing to the Messiah. He has finally arrived. Thousands and thousands of years of prophecy have now been fulfilled. Expectations are now met. Eager anticipation has been realized. Why? Because Jesus is finally here. Redemption is here. Salvation is here. Comfort is here. And so the first two chapters of Luke provide us with loads of confirmation after confirmation from the testimony of the righteous remnants to the testimony of the heavenly host. And then last week, we looked at Jesus' own testimony at age 12 in the temple. If there was any doubt as to who this young baby was and who this young boy is and who this man that we will be introduced to in the coming weeks, all of that gets swept away. Jesus knows exactly who he is. Jesus knows exactly why he came. He is the divine son of God sent by the father from heaven to this earth with a specific mission. And Jesus is going to set his face to complete this mission and be about his father's business. But up to this point, we haven't heard how the Jews or the rest of humanity, for that matter, how are we supposed to respond to this news that Jesus has come? In other words, Luke has told us through the testimony of many others that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world, but how do we receive Jesus? What is the avenue to appropriate this good news that so many have been talking about in the first two chapters? Well, that's where we're going to learn this morning. So would you please stand with me and we will read together Luke chapter 3. And I'll read verses 1 down through 6. Here's God's word for us again this morning. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be made straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. 
is God's word. You may have a seat, and would you please join me as we pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon the exposition. Let's pray. Father, we are utterly dependent on you for everything, for life, for understanding, to be able to respond in faith and in obedience. And so would you please meet us in our desperate state, God, and continue to pour out grace so that we would not just learn, but we would love you with our whole heart, our whole affection, our whole strength, our whole mind. We pray this, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Our uh, main idea, if you're taking notes this morning, is real simple. John's timely and dramatic entrance into public ministry was accompanied by the kind of powerful and preparatory preaching that people need in order to be saved. I'll say that again. John's timely and dramatic entrance into public ministry was accompanied by the kind of powerful and preparatory preaching that people, meaning you and me, that we need to hear, that we need to sit under, and that we also need to preach in order for people to be saved. In our outline, we're going to look at three major headings, and then we'll spend the last part of our time really getting to some of this application. But here are those headings. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 and describe when John's ministry began, then focus a little bit more on verse 2 there, where John's ministry began. We'll close with verse 3, why John's ministry began, and then Again, we'll reflect a little bit on how we, you and I, should respond to John's ministry. So when's, when John's ministry began, where it began, why it began, and then how you and I should respond to his ministry. Well, let's start there with when John's ministry began. Luke begins chapter 3 with providing us with these historical details, this historical background of John the Baptist's ministry. And Luke is going to be very precise in this dating. John's public preaching and baptizing ministry began, he says there, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And you realize we do the same thing to kind of just set things in order. I was thinking about this this week. I was born back in the Carter administration. So that dates me. You know how old I am, for those of you that know your president history. But I spent my childhood under Reagan and Bush, the sweet 80s and 90s. Those were good times. Then there was the crazy teenage years, which was under Clinton. Then there was uh, Masters and Ibex and 9-11 and marriage and a lot of adulting under GW. Then there was Obama. Then there was COVID and a whole lot of crazy under Trump and Biden. And here we are. That's my whole history under those presidencies. Well, the timing of John's entrance onto the world stage cannot be overstated. He is stepping into ministry when internationally, nationally, locally, spiritually, the climate is desperately, spiritually anemic. And if there's any time for a man of God to step up and proclaim the word of God, it is now. So to set the stage, Luke provides us with nine names from the get-go, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, 
Herod, Philip, Licinius, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Zechariah. And he gives us four locations. We have Rome represented, Israel, the temple, and the wilderness. Let me just give you a brief summary of the political and religious hierarchy that Luke lays out for us. And keep in mind, this information isn't really for you to be on Jeopardy someday and win a lot of money, although I hope that's true sometime. But we're not interested in just the historical facts for the historical facts. We want to know the timing, the situation, because God sends forth his man to preach a message at a very crucial time in human history, and that's to prepare the world for the Messiah. So what is the political hierarchy and the social climate that is going on during this time? The word the world ruler is Tiberius Caesar. You can say whatever you want about our presidents, but to be under Tiberius Caesar was awful. He was the Roman emperor who ruled from 14 to 37 AD. He is the stepson of Caesar Augustus, and he began his reign when Augustus died. So 15 years in, this places our timeline around 28 AD. You say, well, what do we know about Tiberius? Well, he was one of the greatest generals and military minds in Roman history, but he was notorious for his sexual deviance. The stuff I read this week was disgusting, and I'm going to avoid the details. But in many people's minds, he holds first place of the Roman emperors of being the most perverted. In addition to that, he had a particular disdain for Jews and for the Jewish God, and so he banished all Jews from Rome. That's the world leader. And under him is Pilate. This guy's got to be better, right? No, no. Pilate was a Roman governor. He was responsible for the province of Judea from AD 26 to 36. He married the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus, Claudia Procula. She was the one that later sent a message to Pilate, do you remember, and said, I had a dream. Don't do anything with that man. Pilate didn't listen to her. Pilate didn't listen to very many people. Philo and Josephus, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he records example after example of how cruel and merciless Pilate was to the Jewish people. In fact, the next time we hear about Pilate in Luke's gospel is there in chapter 13, where it says this. Now, at the same time, there were some present who were reporting to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. One of the most gruesome, descriptive scenes in the New Testament. This guy was a madman. So already we get this picture that the time in which John steps into the world stage was a time full of wickedness and, and particular dislike towards God's people. And then there's the Tetrarchs. We read here in the text, and Herod was a Tetrarch of Galilee. His brother, Philip, was Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was Tetrarch of Abilene. What do we make of this? Well, after Herod the Great's death, Rome divided his kingdom. Rome divided his kingdom between the three sons, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herod Archelaus. Archelaus was such a despicable scumbag that they got rid of him and they put Pilate in his place. So that tells you how bad he was. But really, if you go and do the investigation yourself, you're not going to find a family tree more wicked than Herod's family. Murder, betrayal, adultery, you name it. 
To say that that family was dysfunctional is being way too generous. Scripture and history don't say much about Licinius, and so I won't either. But here again, this is the political elites. Caesar's the ruler of the Roman world. Beneath him is Pilate, and beneath Pilate are these tetrarchs of these various regions throughout Israel, and all of them very ungodly. And so, well, where's the hope? Well, the hope should be in the high priest, those who go between God and man and man and God. The high priest should be a help, shouldn't they? The answer to that is no. Annas, Caiaphas, they were supposed to be the best of the religious leaders, but they were anything but. Annas was high priest from 6 to 15 AD. The Roman governor, Gratus, removed him from his position. Now, you realize this, that under Jewish law, there was only supposed to be one high priest, and you had that office for life, and it was also passed down to your children. But here we read, and Luke uses this on purpose, the singular to speak of high priest, but he names two people. There's both Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so to make a long story short, it's really Annas who's calling the shots. And Caiaphas is basically just a puppet and a yes man. But the important thing to understand is they're both ungodly. And there you go. That is John the Baptist's entrance into the world. That is the scene, the timeline, the setting. It's tethered to real people and real history, but it is a very dark history. It is a godless history. And all of these names, as Luke mentions them, they're meant to evoke political unrest, moral decline, and worthless leadership from the very top all the way down to the bottom. Now, the interesting thing is that this is just a preview for us. You say, what do you mean? Well, we'll be introduced to all of these people again. As we trace John and even Jesus' ministry, we see them pop up. John will be jailed and beheaded for opposing the wicked adultery of Herod Antipas and Herodias. Jesus will encounter these men as he makes his way to the cross. In fact, Jesus goes through not one, not two, not three, but six different trials. It starts with Annas, then it goes to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to the Jewish Sanhedrin, from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, from Herod back to Pilate, and then ultimately to the cross. And so verse 1 here is significant because what it does is it, it sets the stage for the message that John is going to preach. This is a message that everyone needs to hear. It's a message that will transcend world powers and it will provide a solution for the pervading wickedness going on in the world during this time. And it doesn't matter. Procurators, priests, it doesn't matter who's going to try to prevent John, prevent Jesus from accomplishing their mission. But there is an unstoppable force that's been unleashed. And it's going to come through preaching of repentance. Well, let's look at verse 2. And this is exactly what we see. The word of God came to John. And before we get to his message, let's just look real quickly at where this message came. 
Because just like the timing, the location is also significant. So point number two, where John's ministry began. It says there that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan. Now the place here, the wilderness, it seems like a very strange place. It's not somewhere where you would want to set up shop to have a large pastor's conference. Uh, people don't normally go out to the wilderness, but although strange, it is very, very strategic. Luke closed chapter 1 by indicating that John set up camp in the wilderness. If you look back at Luke 180, we read this, the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desolate regions until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Remember, how old are John's parents when John is born? Oh, they're very old, which means that it's probably likely that mom and dad passed away when he was fairly young, and which also means that he may have moved into the wilderness at a fairly young age. And you say, well, how odd for a young man to go and spend all of his time in the wilderness. Why in the world would God send him to the wilderness of all places? Why not send him to Jerusalem or to the temples, uh, the temple? Why not to Rome, somewhere else where there was some sort of power? Why the wilderness? It's a good question. And the answer is twofold. The wilderness looks back. It would have reminded Israel of their sin of their rebellion, especially their post-Exodus wanderings. But again, it also looks forward. The Jews would have been very familiar with that prophecy from Isaiah 43, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You see, the wilderness is where God would call his people to repentance. And when John the Baptist himself quotes Isaiah, alarm bells should have went off. Is it actually happening? Is it now that God is pursuing his people once again? But in addition to looking back and looking forward, there's also the fact that God had a reputation, not just for meeting his people, but for passionately pursuing his people, his people who were sitting in darkness as people who were spiritually desolate and depressed and disheartened. For homework, I think it's a good idea for you to go and read the book of Hosea. In fact, why don't you turn there to the book of Hosea, the first minor prophet. You have the five major prophets, and Hosea launches off into the first of the minor and look there at Hosea chapter 2, and we'll start there in verse 13. Such a fascinating, powerful testimony of God's unfailing, unconditional, and restorative love. There in verse 13, we read, So I will visit the days of the Baals upon her when she used to offer offering and smoke to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and go after her lovers so that she forgot me, declares Yahweh. God is speaking of the harlotry, the spiritual adultery of his people, the breaking of 
the covenants. Look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak to her heart. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt and will be in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, husband, and no longer Bali, master. So I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth so they will be remembered by their names no more. And in that day, I will cut a covenant for them. What we learn from Hosea is we have a gracious, forgiving, loving, pursuing, tender God. So the wilderness was a place of desolation and death. There's no water there. There's no life there. It is a vivid picture of Israel's spiritual life and the distance between them and God. But the wilderness was also the place where God goes on a rescue mission to call his people back to him. Aren't you glad that God came to you when you were in the wilderness? When you were in the mire of your sin? When you had no desire to serve him, to love him, to obey him? Aren't you thankful that God didn't wait for you to clean up your act? To start obeying. Obey the Ten Commandments first, then I might come to you. That's not how it worked. God came to you in your deplorable, disheartened state and saved you. God goes into the wilderness to pursue his people, and that's exactly what we see with John the Baptist. And aren't you glad that Jesus himself, after being baptized, goes right into where? The wilderness. And he overcomes temptation. And he defeats Satan there. And he does what Israel could not do. And he did what Adam and Eve did not do. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the wilderness is where the word of God came to John. And surprisingly, everyone went out to him to hear him preach. We learned this from Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1 and verse 5. And all the region of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sin. Although the wilderness was a very barren place, we've been there. I almost got lost there and almost started crying there. It is a very barren place, but it's estimated that maybe 300,000 people traveled all the way to the wilderness to hear John preach. And you say, why? Because God was speaking to you. Look back at the text. The word of God came to John. This is a prophetic message. There is power. There's authority. Everything John is saying is coming directly from God. In fact, the word right there too, it could be better translated upon. The word of God came upon John. G. Campbell Morgan, he observes that the force of the preposition epi is that of 
pressure from above. The word of the Lord came and pressed down upon John and squeezed God's word out of him. In other words, this wasn't him making some stuff up. This wasn't his preaching. This was exactly what God wanted him to say. He was being a mouthpiece for God himself. There are at least 222 occasions in the Old Testament where it says the word of the Lord came to someone, and when the word comes, God speaks. So there's this prophetic nature to the word that came to John, but it's also worth noting, just real quickly, John's pedigree. Because John is not a priest. His father, Zechariah, was a priest, and that's what we see here. It says John was the son of Zechariah. And that description there, it's very reminiscent of all the Old Testament prophets. You read Jeremiah 1-2, the word of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. Hosea 1, the word of Yahweh, which came to Hosea, the son of Beri. Ezekiel, the word of Yahweh, came expressingly to Ezekiel, the son of Buzi. And the same is true for Joel and Jonah and Micah and Zephaniah and Haggai. I, I pray, would you pray with me, that the word of the Lord would come to Titus and Judah, son of Dominic? Would you, would you pray that the word of the Lord would come to your children? The word of the Lord comes to John, son of Zechariah. Now, in addition to the word of God coming to the prophets, there's also mention of many of them whose fathers were, in fact, priests. And it's the same here with John. His father, Zechariah, we, we study this. He's a priest. But what's interesting is that John doesn't follow in his father's footsteps. He's, he's not in the temple. He is not a priest. He breaks the mold. And his life is significantly different. It is unique. And you say, well, what's so unique and different about John? And first, we can just say this, that it was prophesied that John would be great. Look back there at Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He won't drink any wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And you say, well, isn't that Zechariah that prophesied about that? I mean, come on, like, don't dads make much of their sons? Yes, but Jesus comes later and affirms this. Luke 7, 28, Jesus says, Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And so John's greatness is confirmed by the Lord's own testimony. Well, there are many things that made John great, but one of them was the unique privilege he had. He had one foot in the Old Testament and another foot in the New Testament. Just think about that for a second. John is the last Old Testament prophet, and he is the first New Testament prophet a distinction that belongs to him alone. We have this very interesting statement made by Jesus in Luke 16, 16. It says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed and everyone is forcing his way into it. But listen, not only did John have this unique privilege of being an Old and New Testament prophet, but John stood on the shoulders of all of the prophets and he helped connect the dots between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he not only prophesied about the coming Messiah, but he pointed to him and said, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. So listen, 
John the Baptist, oh, how special was he. And he was sent, again, at the right time with the right message to a world full of wrong. And it's a great reminder to us, church, that in our dark times, and sometimes I just have to not look at social media and not watch the news because it becomes so disheartening, so absolutely disheartening. But God knows where we're at. He knows how dark it is. And he also knows exactly what we need. Listen, church, we don't need political and religious programs. We don't need celebrities. We don't need people who are full of charisma. What we need is men and women with courage and conviction and a compulsion to proclaim the word of God. The place that the word of God comes to John is the wilderness. It is a powerful and prophetic word. It's going to change the world. Now let's look there at verse 3. It tells us why John's ministry began. John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's very important for us to understand that this is preaching, not teaching. And there is a difference. You say, well, Dom, you're, you're teaching right now. Yes, but there is a difference between preaching and teaching. And the word in Greek, caruso, is different than didasko. There's a sense in which someone who preaches is not just trying to fill your head with information. That's not what's happening this morning. But there's a declaration, a, a heralding, a proclaiming, my objective every Sunday behind the pulpit is not just to teach. It's not just to fill your mind with new facts. That's why we don't call it a lesson or a talk or a devotional reflection. The whole point is to persuade you that this is God's word. And we need to respond in faith and obedience and gratitude. Well, the first thing we learn here about John's ministry in particular, that it's a preaching ministry, but it says specifically here, it's a preaching ministry of a baptism of repentance. Now Mark tells us that the first thing that Jesus does when he steps on the scene is he preaches about repentance. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, we read this, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' public ministry in Luke begins by entering into the synagogue. You remember, he, he takes the scroll of Isaiah. He reads it. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then what we understand is that he goes on and he preaches in the synagogues of Judea. Luke 4, 44 you're familiar with Acts chapter 2. And you say, well, how did all these thousands and thousands of people get saved? It wasn't because Peter was giving up and giving some insightful things into the culture. Peter was preaching, repent and believe. You get over to Acts chapter 6. The deacons are established not so that the apostles can be freed up to study what's going on in culture, but to be freed up to preach the word of God. 
And Paul tells his disciple, Timothy, Timothy, I exhort you, preach the word. Listen, the consistent pattern that we see in Scripture over and over again is that God's people gather to hear the word of God preached. And pastors are responsible to faithfully herald the glory of God to the people of God through the preaching of the word. So listen, preaching should be present in the church, but it needs to be primary. But specifically here, though, we read that John came preaching, and again, it says a baptism of repentance. So we have to ask the question, what does that mean? Oftentimes when we have our baptisms here, we say that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. But, but there are just a few things to, to mention. First, John's baptism is not the same as the baptisms we witness here. It's not the same. John's baptism is not the same as Jesus' baptism. John's baptism is pointing forward. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation Whereas when we are baptized in Jesus' name, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, it is an evidence of transformation. Do you remember that scene in Acts chapter 19? There's a scene in Acts 19 where Paul comes to Ephesus. He finds some disciples there, and we read this in verse 2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4, then Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, there's a difference. When Jesus comes, he baptizes in the Holy Spirit. We believe this is when regeneration happens and people believe and you're baptized as a result of that. But here for John's baptism, it is preparatory. The second thing to note about this baptism of repentance is that at the most basic level, baptism is simply about identification. Baptizo, that that word immersion is what it means which also means that the Jews understood that this isn't ritual purification. This isn't proselyte baptism. No, this is different. Which also means that for a Jew to come and get baptized was very unusual. In fact, it's pretty insulting. Because what baptism is saying is you have gone so far from God. You have strayed so far that the only legitimate way to bring you back is to essentially proselytize you back into your own religion. And for many of them, it would have been a slap to the face. But what do we read? They came and they were baptized. Here's a man who's not following in his father's footsteps. He's not a priest. He's not working on behalf of the temple. He just walks into the wilderness and preaches a baptism of repentance But the call for baptism was intended to punctuate their need for repentance. You need to repent. Listen, the problem that we have is that we are sinners. 
And God will not allow sin to be in his presence. And we're not just sinners by choice. We're sinners by nature. David himself declares that he was wicked even from his mother's womb. So when we see little baby Winnie, she's beautiful. I said upstairs, she's like a cherub, but she is a sinner. How do we deal with that sin? What do we do with that sin? What's the solution for that sin? The answer is Jesus. And the way that we come to Jesus is both a knowledge of who he is and the personal possession of him. And the key to having a relationship with him is through faith and repentance. Change of heart, change of mind, an acknowledgement that God is holy and good and we are not. And if we are to have him, we must have a change of mind. That's literally what the word metanoia means. The, the colloquialism in English to change your mind nowadays doesn't mean much because today I changed my mind about what I was going to wear. I wear the big heavy sweater. I probably shouldn't have because now I'm hot. Some of you are going to change your mind about where you're going to go to eat. People change their mind all the time. But it's not something that's superficial. For the Greeks, metanoia was much more significant. It was a profound and radical reversal of the course of one's life. A radical and profound reversal of the course of one's life. And John's message in the wilderness was to turn not just away from sin, but to turn away from sin and to turn to God. That is genuine repentance. The the great Baptist preacher James Edwin Orr asked this. He says, does repentant believe the gospel imply that the sinner must do two things to be saved and not only one? The exhortation really only has one requirement. The instruction, leave London and go to Los Angeles, sounds like two requests, but it really is only one. It is impossible to go to Los Angeles without leaving London. And in the same way, it was impossible for the Jewish people to receive their Messiah without leaving their sin behind. So John's preaching, a baptism of repentance, is the fulfillment of what we read in Luke 1.17. And he will go before him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Why? To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, what we want to do with our time as we come to a close is answer this question. So what? How does this impact us in 2023, so far removed from the wilderness and John's ministry? How should we respond to John's ministry? In other words, if we're going to walk out of here this morning, you can't walk out of here not knowing what repentance actually looks like. What is biblical repentance? Many of you saw that I posted yesterday two very good books, and I commend them to you now. Thomas Watson's book, The Doctrine of Repentance, is a phenomenal book. 
In it, he gives six essential ingredients to genuine repentance. He calls them the sight of sin, the sorrow of sin, the confession of sin, the shame for sin, the hatred for sin, and the turning from sin. You would do well to go and read that book. And then there's J.C. Ryle's small book called Repentance, where he outlines the nature and necessity of repentance and the encouragement toward repentance. But I'm going to give you just a very quick highlight. Six components of genuine repentance. And we're just going to move through them quickly. Conviction. Contrition. Confession. Change. And I'm going to leave the last two for the end. Six components of genuine repentance. Listen, it all starts with conviction of your sin. You know this passage in Isaiah. When Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord, what is his response to seeing God's glory? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. But listen, it is not enough to merely acknowledge that you are a sinner. It's not enough just to agree or even admit that you are a sinner. You need to be convicted of your sin. And that's exactly what happened at the early church. When we read Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, it says this, Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Now, we know that true repentance can only come from the Spirit of God. And that's why Jesus promised that the Spirit would come. And we read this in John 16, 8, And he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You say, well, how do I get more of that? How do I get more of the Spirit convicting me? Well, it comes from the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Listen, if you do not know Christ, it needs to begin here. A vision of God, an understanding of God, a hearing of God's Word that brings about a conviction of your own sin. So the Spirit works through God's Word to bring about conviction. But then secondly, you need a contrition for your sin. This passage in Joel 2.13, it says, tear your heart and not your garments. Don't make it an external thing. It needs to be deep down into your heart. Contrition cuts deep. Ezra chapter 10, when Ezra was praying and making confession, it says he's weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God. And a very large assembly, men and women and children, gathered to him from Israel, and the people were weeping bitterly over their sin. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God will not despise. That is what contrition is. It is sorrow. It is brokenness that results from the Spirit convicting you of your sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, he says, listen, it's not just to make you sorrowful, but that sorrow was actually to bring about repentance. So repentance begins with conviction of sin, then contrition for your sin, but it also involves confession. And we sang about that this morning. Several songs from Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. And men, you know this because we've been reading it for the last several months. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, if you're here and you are not a Christian, this is a part of being made right with God. You need to be convicted of your sin. You need to have sorrow, contrition over your sin. And you need to confess your sin first to God and maybe to others. But listen, confession by itself, that's still not repentance. D.A. Carson wisely said, repentance is not merely an intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person. A fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which result in spiritual fruit. You see, confession, it moves past just the lips and it moves down into the heart. If you name something as evil, your pornography, your lying, your stealing, your cheating, your pride, you can name it, but you must leave it. And you could be so honest, so broken, so emotional about your sin. But if you don't change, that is not genuine repentance. Change in actions and behavior. So listen, I've been there. I've cried over my sin, but there was no change. That is not true repentance. We know that our repentance is real not simply because we feel bad about our sin or even confess it, it's when we renounce it and we acknowledge that God is so much better, that he is so much more glorious, so much more enjoyable. Matthew 3, verse 8, Therefore, Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Listen, I'm going to close with this story. There was a man who lived in the late 1800s His name was Alfred Noble. He was a Swedish chemist, and he invented a very highly explosive device known as dynamite. He believed, honestly, he believed that his invention was going to dissuade countries from going to war because once they saw the kind of carnage that this dynamite produced, he figured no one was going to want to be engaged in war. But soon, he realized that his invention didn't end war, but only increased the desire for it. And he really regretted that he ever invented dynamite. Well, one morning, at the turn of the century, he woke up, he grabbed a French newspaper, and he read the obituary section. This is what he read. The merchant of death is dead. To his horror, he saw his own name in the obituary. It said this, Alfred Noble, the inventor of dynamite who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, 
and he died a rich man. Now, obviously, Alfred wasn't dead. The paper had confused the noble sons. It was his older brother, Ludwig, who had died. But for him, waking up and reading about his life being over had a profound effect on Alfred. And he decided that he didn't want to be known for developing a weapon that could effectively kill countless people. And he certainly didn't want to be known for growing rich doing that. And so what did he do? He felt conviction. He felt contrition. He confessed his transgressions. And he even spent the rest of his life trying to bring about change. And it was significant change. He signed his last will and testament and set aside the bulk of his estates. And he established what you and I know as the Nobel Peace Prize. That's an award for scientists, philanthropists, writers who spend their lives trying to foster peace. And Noble was famous for saying this. He said, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. It's a great story, but it's not a redemptive story. It's not a story of true repentance. Alfred Noble was an atheist. He gave millions and millions of dollars to promote peace. He even continued to donate his money to the church. But Alfred Noble, as far as we know, never truly repented from his sin and turned to God. He never embraced Christ. Oh, he felt bad. He felt conviction. He confessed. He tried to bring about change. But listen, that is not how the gospel works. With nothing to offer, nothing to give, nothing to earn, you and I need to call out to God for undeserved mercy and forgiveness. We need to call out to Christ for cleansing, for change. The gospel is the only hope for salvation. So when John gets up to preach, he's not just preaching that you need to get your life intact and become morally good. He's saying you need to prepare your heart for the Savior who's going to live a life that you cannot live. He's going to live a perfect life and he's going to lay down his life and bleed on a cross for your sins. And that is the only way that you can have salvation. Be Gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That is the only hope that you and I have to have a relationship with the God of the universe. It is through faith and repentance through Christ and Christ alone. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, your word says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because it is with a heart that a person believes, leading to righteousness. And it is with the mouth that he confesses, leading to salvation. Oh, Father, we are 
so thankful for the clarity of your word that repentance is truly a two-sided coin, one side facing away from our sin and the other facing toward God. Oh, Father, I am convicted of my own sin. Recognize that I don't love you and cherish you and serve you the way that I ought. Father, we all feel that sense of weight that we don't love you the way that we should. But we thank you that because we are in Christ, because we acknowledge our sin and confess our sin and feel genuine contrition over our sin, and because we are clinging to the cross for our only hope of salvation, that we have full forgiveness. Father, I'm reminded of what Matthew Henry said, that some people just don't like to hear much of repentance. But oh, how necessary it is. How it needs to come from the pulpits. How it needs to come from our lifestyle, our parenting. Oh, Father, would you make us a church that courageously, convictionally, compassionately, but consistently preaches the need for repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.